0: Welcome back, everybody. One year, and I think two or three weeks later, since we launched or released our, I was about to say most recent Newman Rose podcast, but episode three. I guess technically this is episode four.
1: No, I'm gonna say season two, episode one.
0: Season two, episode Start one yet. of the Newman Rose podcast, joined, of course, with Miss Cassidy herself, the Rose to the Newman Rose. And yeah, we've been... Wanting to bring back this podcast for a long time, we have a lot of messages still to this day saying how much they were getting from the first few that we did. So we're bringing it back now, and yeah, we're going to be talking about, of course, what's going on in our lives as developers because that's what we do day in day out, and hopefully can provide some insight into see how we operate, provide some education while doing so, and really looking to have some guests on with season two and not just any guests like actual developers that are out there in the trenches and have had a lot of success and one thing I'm very conscious of with property developers a lot of the most successful developers aren't on social media and unless you're really deep in the game you're unaware of who they are so I'm well, we both have we're both aware of that we both know a lot of developers and so I'm very keen to pull them into the spotlight and share course what they're doing and and their lessons with you guys so you can get the lessons without the scars so yeah Rosie how are you
1: yeah really good I've just got back I've been away out the country for a month we went to Miami and I've been to Greece so back in sunny London now
0: so yeah we're at my place here in in London I don't know how much you can see behind us but we went to Miami at the start of July for I want to say it was about 10 days maybe for a Grant Cardone event. Now, I know Grant is a very polarizing figure. We won't talk too much about it, but there's no doubt he's had a lot of success, one with his business and his, his 10X brand, but then also his his real estate company. And so I'm a big believer that you can learn something from everyone, even if you don't agree with everything they say and do. And of course, there's a lot we could learn from Grant. So we were just keen to kind of get in a room, get out the country and... Um, yeah, get in room with Grant and, and see what we could learn. But maybe that's a topic we can dive into for another time. But what did you think, Rosie? I've, I've followed Grant for like seven years, yeah, or eight years, and so I don't—I'm not a super fan, but I can really respect what he's done, especially seeing over the last seven years how he's built it. But yeah. you were a little bit—I
1: think um, this. Yeah, this is my first like proper exposure to Uncle G, as we call him. Um, <laughs> it was really, really good. Just. To see the scale of their operation was awe-inspiring. And obviously what they've done across all their different businesses is unreal. Um, And not only that, like now that we're in the space of um, raising some equity, which maybe we'll talk about on this podcast, seeing what they've done, we were just like, wow, we need to make you feel small pretty much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And um, one of the things mindset i had going in and i said this to you rosie before we went into the first the first day of the event was a, l- a lot of the time with these people you can learn just as much by watching what they do yeah. and watching how they operate rather than listening to what they say and for me that was that was what i was interested in i was thinking, yay whatever he's teaching is cool it wasn't actually super detailed it was it's pretty like high level, level surface yeah. level information but Understanding obviously how they operate and looking at the business model was was pretty impressive. But
1: Miami is a cool city, so
0: Miami is cool. So yeah, um, I guess one thing we wanted to do in in this podcast, of course, with Newman Rose, we've got various projects going on. Some we can't talk about too much still because of planning, and I mean planning has been the bane of our lives. But of one that is probably on the brink of construction starting finally is. Our uh, site in Cambridgeshire for yep. seventeen units it's twelve detached houses that are three and four bedrooms, mm-hmm. five affordable yeah we would have talked about it last year on season one of the I'm podcast, it now. and at that point, we would have literally just have had the ball rolling, yeah, so I guess maybe what I wanna do is kind of for us Rosie to explain where we're at, but also think back to kind of like twelve months ago everything that's happened from then until now with the planning the debt financing the Mm -hmm. investors that we work with the construction side of things and all of the moving parts that have led us to get to this point why it's taken so long but also the lessons that we've learned yeah if we were to do this process again um what would we do so i don't know where you want to start but do you want to give some context into kind of where we're at now with the deal
1: so right now we have issued letter of intent to our main contractor mm-hmm. and so which basically means we're now working up to formally sign the build contract. We're hoping to be on site sort of mid to late September so sort of you know six weeks time um, subject to a few other things falling in line, but if not it's you know pretty imminent, which just feels like forever in the making, but um, will be really surreal and amazing when we actually break ground that first day. Um, so yeah, as of right now, we're like, it's quite full on, um, all of the pieces like the funding, the planning, the construction, all the final stages all come together sort of at the same time. Um, so yeah, we're nearly ready to, to get going on site.
0: Cool. So for con, so for con- context of what the deal is or mm-hmm. how we kind of purchased and acquired it. So if you want, I want to go into the full story of how we came across the deal, but we, bought the piece of land it's two and a half acres in a village called islam in cambridgeshire really cool little village and when we came across it it had outline planning permission for the same 17 units very similar layout to where we're at now and in fact while it's in my head if you go over to my instagram maybe we'll put on rosie's instagram as well we just had the cgi's come through which we're super super happy with mm-hmm. that they look super photorealistic, realistic and we're really really happy with the design but when we bought it with outline planning permission the drawings mm-hmm. the designs did not look like that the true. kindest way to put it that we describe it is they're very uninspiring mm-hmm. and we have essentially from the process of getting outline planning permission to full planning permission wanted to redesign the layout slightly but more so the house type specifically the upstairs to increase the overall square feet therefore increasing the, the GDV yeah. um, and not only square feet just the the aesthetic of the the design and the site as well to it's really not only
1: that it's the usable space so yeah part of what so obviously we've added square footage which is great but we've actually from what was existing mm-hmm. utilized it to be usable because the designs as proposed the roof construction meant that there was you'd have to you know be like three and a half foot tall (laughs) to be able to properly live in this um property so we've added square footage but actually all of the square footage now is um fully usable whereas in the other design maybe only 60 percent of the square footage was usable so we've corrected some fundamental flaws as well as obviously adding value so it's it was like a two-prong attack
0: so do you want to I mean do you want to explain the specifics from a construction perspective of how we've actually done that with the the top floor?
1: Uh yeah, so um initially um the roof was just on standard trusses. We've changed those to attic trusses which have um a rise on them before the slant, so they create some more uh, internal spacing as well as the sort of like structural support of them is different. So a normal truss might um, be what we call like a W truss or a web truss, some people call it, which has like the um, W shape inside, whereas in an attic truss, it's completely open. Um, On the old design, it was off of sort of a converted W, so it was smaller internally, whereas this purpose-built truss meant there's more space. But additionally to that, we've now got a hip and gable roof. So before it was just um, like a hip roof, whereas now we've added a big long gable to either side which completely opens up um the design and that's where the so essentially we've added is it like seven and a half thousand square feet
0: um i think eight eight thousand yeah Yeah.
1: um anyway whatever we have added is importantly been added on the same footprint of Mm. so the ground floor is exactly the same footprint but it's just that redesign of the roof um with different type of truss and the gable ends have um yeah created more uh square footage of like saleable space
0: so in simple terms that I'd understand <laughs> would be, if you imagine like a dormer bungalow, that's what it yeah. was like before. We've kind of taken it to more of a dormer house, if you like, is a kind of...
1: Mm, kind of, the ridge height hasn't changed. It there's ugh, I don't know how to explain it. We'd have to pop up visuals, but... I'm um, not a planning officer, you don't have to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, just in case they're watching. Um, <laughs> yeah, so essentially there's more... It, the, the main difference is before all of the walls and all of the rooms had a slanted edge to them, Yeah. now a lot of the rooms will at least have one flat oh, a lot of the rooms now will have at least one flat um, gable to them, so that basically creates a lot more of the space
0: and you can see in the CGI's actually how much more space there yeah. is, it's really not that obtrusive where yeah. the trusses. is one looks in. more
1: like a bungalow One mm-hmm. looks look, one does look more like a house yeah so you were kind of right, I guess. Crop that out, or I said that.
0: No, we'll soundbite that. Can We <laughs> save that. Where Rosie said that I'm maybe right. Maybe right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we've redesigned that. Redesigned the aesthetic. We, I mean, there's a video on my YouTube channel as well where we kind of showed it. But essentially, we made the road a little bit narrower, narrower yeah. because it was unnecessarily big, which allowed us to kind of make the driveways a bit of a better space, um, a bit bigger as well. Yes, yeah, so we took soft landscaping
1: yeah a double width road to a narrow narrower road um obviously that's got like cost implications things like that but an amazing one is the fact that it softens the scheme so if you had it as the size it was proposed plus the driveways and all those things the driveways were a lot bigger originally as well um it would look very barren as a site Mm -hmm. um that's something people don't always think about when you're looking at just a plan but when you ultimately build it you you do want you know greenery on your site otherwise it I don't know it looks cold and not a kind of place someone wants to live so by changing the road and the driveway design we've added a lot more soft landscaping into the site just to make it it's quite a rural location as well so mm-hmm. it's more in keeping and just overall nicer.
0: I think we want to f- want it to feel like it's an exclusive yeah. cul-de-sac that isn't just a branch off and as another road another cul-de-sac in the village it's Really, this this quite exclusive. Yeah, um, that's that's well designed, and yeah, one of the CGIs we've got is a kind of bird's eye view as well, which kind of shows it off really nicely. So yeah, so that's the process we've essentially been through with the redesign, going from the outline to the full. Now, it wasn't all under reserve matters application, was it?
1: No. So it was actually what's called a Section seventy three amendment to planning to. Um, linked to the outline um which basically meant that we were requesting to amend the condition which related to the plans that we had to abide by Mm -hmm. so we resubmitted a different plan basically being obviously our designs and by that being approved we now essentially have like an outline but with our plans instead Mm -hmm. so we still had to submit our reserve matters which is in now um which is for the landscaping but obviously we couldn't submit that until the section 73 was approved because as i mentioned the landscaping changed so yeah once we have that we have our full planning
0: so i want to loop back to that but essentially by doing this redesign although it's taken us so long to do essentially what it's allowed us to do is taken the what was originally a projected gdv of about six and a half million if we go back to our very original uh, appraisal when we first offered on the site Mm -hmm. to now pushing up to kind of eight and a half or maybe if depending what happens at prices, uh, we've been conservative eight and a half could be closer to, to nine million pound GDV. And it's added another about million pounds to the bottom line profit margin, mm-hmm. which although we've been sat on the site on a bridge loan, which comes to the end of its term in a few weeks, actually, um, it's been well worthwhile because yeah. of that added value could it have happened a lot quicker yeah there's been of course a lot of bureaucracy with planning so coming back to what you said about the the section 73 and the reserve matters what we originally did was we submitted both at the same time yeah and i mean the council have been a nightmare surprise surprise and they essentially then said well they said what
1: so initially they initially we asked them can Mm -hmm. we do them at the same time in tandem and obviously you sort of just do the reserve matters just after Mm -hmm. Section 73 and sort of look at it in the assumption that it's been approved. They're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. We submit them and they come back and say, no, you've got to pull the reserve matters. So uh, that had to get withdrawn until the Section 73 was approved, which, whatever, is what it is, but the council should have just said clearly from the start. Um, So yeah, Section 73 has been approved and then we pretty much straight away submitted the landscape.
0: And so for those who don't know, the, the reserve matters is of course the application that takes a site from outline planning permission to full planning outline essentially being council approving the concept of development yeah. although there have been some matters that have been reserved that essentially need to be yes. finalized before they're happy to give the the final ticket mm-hmm. and so in this instance the reserve matters i mean what what's the reserve matter it's just
1: uh, the landscape plan yeah so basically the landscaping on the site Um, Also, because it was an outline, we've got probably slightly more conditions to discharge, Mm -hmm. pre-commencement conditions, um, than you maybe would with a full, but essentially, whichever way you come at it, you end up having to jump through the same hoops.
0: Okay. So that's the planning side of things. And then right now we're expecting, I think we had a message on WhatsApp from the architects this morning. What did they say in terms of uh, timeframes and timescales now to get that last bit of planning permission approved?
1: So... um, we had the consultation back from the tree officer, who said we need to get. So init- initially, our architect did the landscape design and just did, you know, trees, bushes, whatever. But they came back and said, on the comments was, "This is a, it produces pears or a type of pear, which is a health and safety slip hazard." <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to planning. Um, so we had to go back, and they said it needed to be done. Basically, they wanted a level of detail that has to be done by a specific landscape architect.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've now
1: gone to one of them. Um, and I think they said we're awaiting a few more days until we get that back, and then it should be determined in two to three weeks.
0: Cool. Okay. Well, that's the planning side of things. Yep. Another piece of the puzzle is, I mean, let's start with construction, um, which we're pretty close cluck- with. Well, that has been a journey, but we're coming to, we've got the the finish line in sight with construction. So going all the way back, of course, when you do an appraisal on one of these, especially around the time that we agreed to buy this, at the time, things were just going crazy with construction costs. And you can look at as much kind of data and speak to enough, um, as many professionals as you want that have got their ear to the ground about what it's going to cost to build it. A lot of the time, you kind of just have to, one, be very conservative with all your other costs because assuming worse comes to worse, you know you still want to be able to deliver a profit and i mean should we talk about what we priced the construction to be versus what it's come out at or how that the, the process of actually getting to the point now where we've got a contractor in place
1: yeah so without bringing the appraisal up i can't remember the noise exactly off my head but i think so well where our contract initially came in at from the mains contract, so we're now to tender to a few different contractors.
0: So explain what that is, and you know, explain the process of actually putting that tender pack together because that okay. was a process in itself. Yeah, that was a
1: process in itself. So the tender pack is essentially all your working drawings, your engineers' mm-hmm. drawings, your uh, mechanical, electrical drawings, drainage strategy, ground investigation reports, basically any anything that's pertinent to the construction goes in that pack. And it's it's a big pack, and it goes out to contractors have said yes we would like to bid and a contractor is in this context a construction company that will literally take the site and turnkey deliver exactly as proposed in an agreed time frame at an agreed price so we go out to them and then they take eight ten weeks to come back they got price it all they go to their suppliers and come back with here's our proposed price um getting that tender pack together took a while um, because we had to get some drainage approved with the council, and they were being a little bit difficult. And then we were trying to get the road adopted initially. They were being difficult.
0: Surprise, surprise. There's a recurring theme <laughs> there's a, here. There's a theme
1: here. Um, eventually, we went with an unadopted road, because it doesn't need to be adopted just to save time. Um, and eventually, we got the prices back. When they first came back, I was just like, shit. <laughs> they, they were over budget. Um, and I had an initial moment where I was like, oh God, like Mm -hmm. what's the solution here? Um, I think they were basically, one was really, really high, which just could never work. And one was, um, the contract we're now going with was basically 5 million pounds on, we needed it to be like 4.3. Yeah. It was what our appraisal had across the different professional fees and contingencies and everything. We had basically just over 4.3 allocated and ours came in at five. <laughs> and I was like, that's a lot of money to save. Um, so at first there was a panic, um, but then when I actually started working through and um, looking at what I'd been allowed for, there were some over allowances, there was some miscommunication, there was the opportunity to change some spec in some areas. Basically, we're now 200,000 pounds over where we initially were at, but um,
0: we've actually made up a lot of money elsewhere. We've made up deal. a lot of
1: money elsewhere. One from the increase in the land value. The offers for the affordable housing are like one hundred sixty thousand pounds higher than expected. And I'm still working on more savings. That's just where we are right now. Just today, I got another like twenty-five thousand.
0: So give give some examples of of the savings that we got and how you spotted them
1: um so it was a combination wasn't just me sometimes the contractor suggested things sometimes the employee's agent um it was a combination of everyone looking at it from different angles um there were some overmeasures so just like on the brickwork and things like that where they had you know allowed too much so there was just some savings from corrections um we changed from aluminium windows to UPVC, so just a different type of window i think it saved like Twenty-six thousand pounds Mm -hmm. um we had a particularly expensive type of like uh, patio slabbing Mm -hmm. so that got changed uh one of the drainage routes was particularly expensive and we changed it to a trench along the back of a few um houses which does mean we then have to put like a maintenance company in place but i think it saved like 30 something thousand pounds so it's worth up a little limited company for it um and yeah and then some other things were just smaller things like um changing the um pc sum for tiles from 50 to 30 pound a meter square but once i looked at what prices we can get things from you know pl- brands like Noza for good quality porcelain tiles we could get it comfortably within the pricing so and they were maybe like three thousand four thousand pound savings but whenever you get a contract in like this where in our case we needed 700,000 pounds it's not one thing or even like two or three things that save 700,000 pounds it is
0: aggregation of marginal gains to be cliche
1: yeah no, it, no it, it really is yeah. i think the highest saving at any specific element was like 40,000 pounds so it was a combination of so many little tiny changes
0: and even with windows for example on, on 17 houses i mean how many windows are going to be across the whole site and then just, yeah, a few savings on, on windows, doors. Yeah. Um, so, and then in terms of the contractor then, so we had the three contractors come back, mm-hmm. two were kind of way out. Yeah. One was good. And then, I mean, I didn't go because I had other commitments at the time, but you went and visited one of the sites yeah. that that contractor was built out as well just before we decided to go ahead with yeah. them. So, I mean, just talk through kind of that process and why that was important to you.
1: Yeah, so we went to the site, one to meet the guys, mm. um, with one of them was on holiday, but one of the main guys, Nick, we met, um, and yeah, to see some of their work. So we, I did actually take Ollie with us, and we, re- we recorded some more for internal purposes, but because it was another developer, we didn't obviously share it publicly. But, you know, genuinely, it was one of the nicest new build sites I've been to in you know, a very, very, very long time. And that wasn't just from the contractor, that was from the design team. You know, that was one of those sites where everything had come together so nicely to produce such a, you know, like I would live there, for example. Mm-hmm. So one, it's obviously important to see the quality, to understand, you know, what, what did they expect? So then I would ask certain questions with a certain like question. I wanted a certain answer, if that makes sense. I knew what the answer I wanted was. And every time they gave me, Mm-hmm. The answer I wanted to hear, which just like instilled confidence in me, if that makes sense, in, in what they were doing. And then afterwards, we went into the site cabin, just discussed where we were at with the build. And I basically said, look, we're too high. We need to save some money. But we had this conversation. I think it, it might actually be on YouTube somewhere where I basically said, you know, I'm open to a lot of changes, but quality can't give. Mm-hmm. Like the quality of the build from like a fabric first approach cannot be be like compromised,
0: and so ex- so explain that approach when it comes to to quality and where where you want the quality to be.
1: So a lot of people think, oh, you know, I want the expensive Nair for Siemens or Miele appliances versus you know maybe a lower grade Nair for like an AEG. Which yes, don't be wrong. Obviously there is a difference, but that doesn't mean anything if you mm-hmm. know your walls are shoddy. Mm-hmm. Which obviously everything passes building regs. Right, I'm not talking you know tin huts here but you know we want something that stands a test of time is a quality build from the things you don't see first and foremost
0: mm-hmm.
1: not the things you do see a lot of developers sort of i think polished turd is mm-hmm. a great phrase here they put a shiny kitchen in to hide the fact that behind the scenes it's not the quality we want whereas they were from a you know, a fabric first being the building first and then what you put in it sort of not doesn't matter. It obviously still is important. We're still gonna put nice kitchens in. But personally, I would rather compromise on, you know, a slightly cheaper stone worktop and slightly cheaper appliance than change from, you know, Mm not acoustically insulate the walls or something. yeah and you
0: can hear the kids in the next room or the footsteps upstairs as someone runs exactly. across the exactly yeah.
1: um so it's which f- you know each their own but personally that's what i would rather experience is a cheaper slightly cheaper kitchen but not hear the conversations of my neighbors
0: cool so and, and
1: the contractor really agreed with that which is for me really important they they, they completely that was like their approach to saving money as well mm-hmm. um which I think we really just aligned in our ethics in that sense, which was really good.
0: And so what date have they given us that they could potentially start?
1: They would be ready to immobilise on the 19th, mm-hmm. subject to the final funding piece and the planning being in place.
0: Okay, so that's the contractor side of things. Mm-hmm. And how, how big is a tender pack, by the way? Like if you were to print off all the documents, put them in a pack, give us some kind of visual of how big we're talking. I mean for those that are listening to audio only, but um in terms of number of pages.
1: A couple of hundred well, I don't know, maybe yeah, well over a hundred I'd say.
0: Well and comfortably. made up of all different kinds of drawings and
1: drawings, reports, surveys, um yeah, literally anything that affects the build. So yeah.
0: Maybe we'll do a video going through a tender pack <laughs> two hours. <laughs> of tender Detailed
1: pack description of every page
0: Could you tender pack asmr as well just yeah. as you're op- opening <laughs> no. the pages um i couldn't think of anything Well i know it's interesting but it's it's one of those things obviously part of the game doing the boring work you need to yeah. do it and understand it so that's the planning we've discussed that's the mm-hmm. contractor route we've discussed obviously we're going main contracts yeah. to route we don't want to be rosie and i don't want to be on site ordering bricks and windows and Making sure the plumbers turn up on not on well. the right day at the right time. Our time is better spent elsewhere. We'd rather pay a main contractor. It's gonna take a healthy margin out of this. Yeah. But it's gonna allow us to, to have but, so much. And more. also
1: they're specialists in construction. Like I've got pretty good construction knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wouldn't want to run a site. No. Not from aside from the fact that I don't I don't have the interest to I don't feel confident enough to mm-hmm. to deliver to the quality that we'd want to deliver to like we are not construction experts we're property developers we are not contractors so mm-hmm. i always say like let your profession like let the professional do their role and in this situation the contractor is the professional at construction so that's another reason why we're outsourcing it basically
0: and and this is one thing we've we've discussed today we've had a team meeting today with a couple of the guys have come come down and we've just talked about all different sides of the business obviously with our education side of the business, which we don't talk about too much on this podcast and maybe we'll talk about it um, in the future. We'll we'll put some links in the description below this video or on on Spotify, on on iTunes um, in the description too. But um, of course, a lot of what we teach and wanted to continue to teach and actually shed more light on for our students that are in the development game, that are some are just starting their business and whatnot is the importance of building out a power team. Because a lot of the time... We have find them coming, I mean, to me, to you, to whoever else. Them uh, being the students. Them, them being the students yeah. coming to us with, with questions, which are very specialist, very technical mm-hmm. questions. And the reality is, they're questions that need to be asked to a power team. And yeah. basically, what Rosie and I believe is that we are generalists in the sense that across every part of property developments, whether it's planning strategy, construction, finance, acquisition, design sales. design, sales, general operations, we have generalist knowledge in each area to the point where we can have really constructive conversations mm-hmm. with the professionals in that area. So when it comes yeah. to obviously meeting the contractor um, at that site, for example, to see examples of their work, although what we're looking at, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're the specialists. but you know what questions to ask, what are the right answers, yeah. what, what they mean all the all the jargon etc um same with planning same with the design etc but and there are going to be certain areas where you are more of a specialist in so yeah. for you maybe that is construction and planning to put to honest with you it's probably all of them for me it's you know the finance side finance, of things yeah. is what I, I really really understand the acquisition and negotiation side of things really really understand um and, and then sales just and, marketing. And, the, and the sales and marketing on the back end and the exit strategy and and whatnot and having the right team in place but um, really, a lot of the technical questions, that's what you need the power team for. Yeah. That's what you need to, to have them for. So it's really important that anyone that's kind of starting out in property development, first thing you need to do, there's like three things you need to be doing is one, you need to start thinking about raising money and, and yeah. having conversations with potential partners, potential investors, see what kind of soft commitments you can get. Of course, doing it compliantly yeah. because there are FCA regulations around financial promotions. You'll hear us talk about this a lot. It's a big part of our business. Second thing you need to be doing is, is working on your deal flow, so yep. finding deals, approaching landowners, off-market, on-market. Right of um, and the third thing you need to be doing is, is building the right team around you, so in your area, who is going to be the best person that's best placed to consult with you on planning as a planning consultant, who's going to be the best QS that, that understands local build costs in the area and and whatnot. So, Not um, only that,
1: these are people that y- you're going to be working with for quite mm-hmm. a long time, so these need to be people... That you genuinely do get along with as well, yeah. um, because you spend a lot of time talking to these people, so yeah, that's it's so important, and you know, you really need to feel confident in your professional team because you know, you're a fool if you think you're going to do this on your own. You made a good point today that if you've got a site of a t- we're talking GDV and you sort of forget that that is a business in itself, mm-hmm. like it's just oh, it's a site of 10 million pounds. G- also, Cambridge, for example, yep. let's say it's eight and a half, you wouldn't build an eight and a half million pound business on your own, or you'd very rarely would you so why would you try and do a development on your own when there's so many more moving parts and say like an e-commerce business mm-hmm. like yeah you, you're a, you're a fool for trying to do it on your own and, and having that really strong professional team around you either in-house or outsource we outsource um is you know so vital for we wouldn't be where we were we are right now if it wasn't for all the minds that have touched our deal
0: and another example of that if we kind of take inspiration from other kind of products and service businesses whether it's I don't know, like a, an e-commerce or whatever. I, I mean, I've got uh, all, a lot of my friends kind of in central London, super successful entrepreneurs with multi high seven figure or eight figure businesses. A lot of them talk about an inflection point that happens in their business. At Although when they're going from zero to one and they're getting the business off the ground, they are the generalist. Mm-hmm. They e-commerce, for example, they understand how to build out the store with the web design. They understand how to build out the back end, the, yeah. the marketing, they're, they're running the ads, they're doing the creatives for the ads they're doing the finances and of course they then start to build out a bit of a team but they've got knowledge in all the different areas that they've built upon the inflection point is when they hire people above them rather than below them they hire people that are then smarter than them when it comes to the finance side of things they're hiring people that are smarter than when it comes to the um yeah the finance the back end the marketing and that's what really takes people from, you know, yeah. to to that next level. And it's the exact same thing in yeah. property development. I don't want to be, I have no desire to be amazing at building out construction drawings or designs on whatever the software that, what's the software that architects use? Like Revit, is it Revit? Uh, CAD. CAD or, or yeah. yeah. I think
1: they then convert to
0: Revit. Something like that.
1: Something like that. They're two terms I've heard float around. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and but I'd rather at this point hire somebody when it comes to the finances. Obviously we keep a track of the finances on the business and make, see what the variance is between what we, we forecasted for the cost versus what we're actually paying. Mm -hmm. But it's going to get to a point where actually let's bring someone in house. Let's, let's work with someone that can um, that knows more and can help us manage cash flows and, and whatnot. So yeah, power team is super, super important, bit of a tangent there, but hopefully a useful perspective. I guess one of the other pieces of the puzzle then is finance, because yes. it's one thing finding these deals, it's one thing having the right team in place to help you deliver them and finding the contractors, but if you haven't got the money to do it, these people don't work for free. <laughs> these, yeah, these deals don't exist. So when we agreed to buy this deal, mm-hmm. this and I don't sound irresponsible saying this because it was done responsibly, but we didn't know exactly how we were going to yeah. fund it. What we knew is it still makes profit we can add value to it even more yeah we've got the skills that are required to see this through and can build out the team to help deliver that and the second thing we also knew is that there's an abundance of money out there and if there's money to be made on this deal we can we can find the money so a lot of the money is going to come from banks in the mm-hmm. form of development finance which we'll talk about and then there's obviously equity that's required to put yes. in which is simple times essentially the deposit or the skin in the game yeah. that the banks like want to see yeah. and i mean these are big deals so the equity requirement of this deal is is a million quid or so something around that i think is a little bit over um or maybe a little bit less it's around a million we've raised yeah. we've raised a million and if we need to raise a little bit more we will yeah, I think but a million
1: plus the cash we've put in so probably like one, one
0: 1.2 exactly so these bigger deals rosie and i We've obviously got capital, but don't want to put them all into this deal. We'd rather from a capital allocation perspective, we've got other deals that we're taking through planning, which is where the money's at risk a bit more. We'd rather use our own funds for that rather than investors funds. funds. If we were to use investor funds for planning because of the risk, it's also high reward for the investors. Mm -hmm. It means the money is very expensive. So we want to leverage other people's money and and bring in equity partners and with that there's a lot of hurdles around compliance and collective investment schemes which um, a lot of other developers ignore Mm -hmm. for us playing a long-term game in the public eye we want to make sure we're we're doing everything by the book one because that's just one of the way the principles we live by but also looking into the future never at any point do we want somebody to to come back and look for our deals i think are you raised money illegally there those financial promotions were illegal that was a collective investment scheme that was unregulated
1: not only that we'd rather hopefully this is a small deal Mm -hmm. relative to what you know one day we're going to do i'd rather go through this like teething process because it has been painful learning to do all of this Mm -hmm. i'd rather do it now on a smaller scale than in the future you know obviously trying to do it for a you know tens of million pound deal that would be awful
0: of course And we actually ended up investing in two different companies as, I don't want to say angel investors, but we put venture capital into um, two businesses, two startups that massively helped us. But the whole financing side of of property development specifically is a very broken industry. If you want to go get a buy to let mortgage, there are plenty of mortgage comparison sites or a simple, any mortgage broker on the street. They've all got similar access to the same kind of system with development finance for example it's that the transparency just isn't there until recently so we came across a company called Brickflow. um so shout out to brickflow.com and ian and ian, ian Humphreys, who will have on the podcast soon actually ian actually delivered a presentation at a an event yeah. we hosted for all of our students yeah. uh, a couple months back and like Everyone was mind blown. Everyone that. was mind Even blown. We were. Me, me and I was like this, he just offers so many perspectives on de- development finance that we'd never thought of, and yeah. really showed the difference of like, um, you know, we'll, we'll get the we'll get Ian on and we'll run through some of the talking points yeah, let he let had in that presentation. He's the best at it. And so make sure you subscribe for that one, of course. But yeah, Brickflow is essentially a like a a comparison website where you can plug in the details of your deal, and they work very closely with all of the lenders yeah. to give you. Um, some terms but because of the complexity of these deals what you have to understand is that or so although some lenders let's say two lenders for example they both provide you indicative terms of like 75 mm. percent loan to value on on the gdv yeah. they could mean two entirely different things they may calculate their interest separately uh, s- differently where they have different requirements this is where the equity comes from They can have different requirements on the personal guarantee hurdles yep. um Net, yeah net worth requirements and yeah. uh different ways of doing things so
1: it's also important because on that platform you can see like the debt coverage really yeah. clearly because i think one mistake some people make obviously it's horses for courses and each lending's individual but some people maybe just go with with oh that's the cheapest interest rate therefore that's going to be the cheapest funding yeah and it's not because your debt is just one piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. and people forget that obviously if you've got your own cash then great but then you could argue there's a cost of putting your own cash in when you could, Mm -hmm. you know, utilise that elsewhere. Sometimes, and this is what I found was really useful with um what Ian and Brickflow do, is it really showed you exactly the the true reality of these terms. So we actually ended up going with one that was like on the middle of interest, but offered us the most attractive debt coverage on Mm -hmm. a first charge. Because we raise equity and obviously equity is more expensive, actually in the bigger picture, this was the cheaper debt than the cheaper interest debt that offered a lower um actual like cash to us if that mm-hmm. makes sense and, and that's what i think is brilliant about Brickflow is they make that process of really like comparing the different um offerings so clear and simple to us as developers who maybe aren't from like the funding world and can see all this clearly and mm-hmm. yeah i mean i wouldn't have got through getting the bridge or the development finance without you
0: <laughs> so and and it, the lenders love it as well because yeah. they get all the information they need from us. So how it before we came across BrickFlow, I mean, I spoke to maybe two or three development finance brokers that I must have met on LinkedIn or social media that reached oh, out or yeah. through friends of friends. And they're like, okay, send across all the information packs. We'll send across an appraisal, drawings, whatever, put mm-hmm. a bit of information pack. And they end up putting, a, putting them into an email, attaching all the information onto an email, uh, BCC- Twenty Every different, yeah, twenty different uh, lenders, and just see what comes back. And they'll say, "Oh, yeah, we've got this awesome offer at eighty percent loan to value at yeah. this interest rate." But you've got nothing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. You know, very little about, like I say, PG hurdles, net worth requirements, yeah. or income requirements, experience requirements, their preferences on where the equity can and can't so come from. All the
1: way down the line, waste time, whatever, mm-hmm. just to realize they don't align with you and your business model. Whereas yeah. Brickflow, it literally you can hover over like the question mark or the icon, and it says, mm-hmm. you know, this much experience. This is where the equity needs to come from. Just could not be more crystal clear.
0: So shout out to Brickflow. Ian will come on and blow everyone else's minds as well. And then the other side is is the equity. So we've raised essentially two tranches of the equity. Now we've talked about compliance, maybe on the on the other ones. The long and short of it is the Financial Conduct Authority. They regulate financial promotions so how you promote the fact that you're looking to raise money and they also regulate what are called collective investment schemes which is essentially where there's more than one passive investor on a project passive meaning they're not involved in the day-to-day operations of the business that is then classified as a collective investment scheme and then that has to be regulated by the fca or the transaction has to be facilitated by an authorized representative of the FCA, which is route we went down. So, Rosie and I wanted to get a direct license. Tyler's made
1: that sound really simple, but mm-hmm. coming across that knowledge in itself was uh, difficult.
0: And and this is this is actually the problem is that and most and it's not mo- when most people are breaking the law, if you like, and not abiding by regulation. It's like ninety nine percent of the time. It's not because they can't be bothered. It's because they're just unaware.
1: Yeah, they don't even know they're breaking
0: the law. Unaware they're breaking the law. So, I mean, we reached out to John Corey, who I'd seen him around over the years as me being a property, and he's a bit of a compliance expert. Mm -hmm. Well, I say a bit of a compliance expert. He He is. is. He understands the FCA regulation. He's read all the policy statements, and he introduced us to a company called Leo Crowdfunding. Yeah. Because I said, John, like, we've got this social media audience, these people that know, like, and trust us, that are offering to send us money. But I just know there's some... Compliance around what I can and can't say, and financial inducements, How and all that. The money. And then, even if I can take the money, then a collective investment scheme. But if I want to get a direct license with the FCA, and become authorised, that means I need a full-time compliance person on the team yeah. in-house, maybe on a high five-figure, or probably even a six-figure yeah. salary. The FCA can then subpoena me at any given moment for anything. I need to keep a minimum of a quarter of a million pound cash in the bank all times. So all these crazy things. I don't know the exact requirements, but I, I know enough to know that it's not worth it. And so. John said, well, you can work with a company like Leo Crowdfunding, who are a crowdfunding platform for equity, not debt. So there are some crowdfunding companies like Crowd Property, for example, which I think is peer-to-peer debt. This is for the equity piece. Mm-hmm. And basically, Leo Crowdfunding are an authorized representative of another company that uh, their FCA principal, which just basically means we can have multiple passive investors in a deal, put money in. So if we want to raise a million pounds, that could be 10 people putting 100 grand into yeah. the deal. And when I first heard crowdfunding, I was like, no, I don't want crowdfunding. I don't need that. We've got the investors. My opinion of crowdfunding was we, like Indiegogo or Kickstarter, yeah, where yeah. you just, you put your project on the website and you hope cool. that people share on social yeah. media and people come in. I was like, no, we've got the investors. But we did what we call a behind the curtain raise. so It wasn't publicly advertised on yeah. the crowdfunding website, but it just means everything was done
1: was the compliance banner and facilitated what yeah. we already had in a compliant manner um which was well, so important obviously for doing the deal
0: so, there's so many benefits to it crowdfunding for equity and for property has actually hasn't been around for very long the if you look at take grant cardone for example and what he's done with cardone capital where he's able to go on Instagram, Facebook, social media every day and promote card capital and promote investment opportunities. So he's regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which is the the US's equivalent of our FCA. The SEC is a little bit more relaxed in terms of all Grant has to do is put a little bit of a disclaimer at the bottom that kind of all investments carries risk, etc. You could lose all your money in super small writing at the bottom of the page, but Grant can do it. And, Although Grant is the most well-known, actually in the US, there are so many private property investors or individuals like myself and Rosie mm-hmm. that are raising money like that and they have funds and they can raise money from social media. Yep. In the UK, it's, it's no one's done it yet or it's, it's not been happening because of this regulation. But as these crowdfunding compliance solutions are starting to come to market and Leo crowdfunding is only, I think, one of three in the UK that can do equity and of the three... They're, they're by far the best for, for many different reasons. And um, yeah, so this this is the future. This is what yep. we call the new breed of developer where developers or, or property investors who want to raise money for their, for their investment deals, they can get all their marketing material, all their financial promotions approved. They can then market it. They can then have multiple people come together on a project. In the US, they call it a syndication. But it's it's no different to how these big private equity firms operate. It's just being able to do it at a smaller scale.
1: Without the same massive buy-ins.
0: So we did two different tranches. So it means like two different rounds of investment. Yep. We did the first one to get into the deal when we bought that uh, piece of land for 910 10? plus stamp. And we got a bridging loan for about 50, was it 50% loan to value?
1: Yeah, but your interest comes off of that. So actual cash in is a bit less. Yeah, so we
0: raised four hundred or so. I think close to five hundred thousand. I think it was four hundred and fifty, off the top of my head, for to get us into the deal. And essentially, they are they are shareholders in the SPV because it's equity. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say, "Well, what security do you offer them?" Well, it's 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 equity. So they they become shareholders in the SPV. Think of it as buying stock in Apple. If you go to the, the stock market and you buy shares in Apple you own you a bit of apple yeah you own a bit of apple you don't ask apple you know what how are you securing my money therefore here's some here's some shares like that's it and yeah. apple have no obligation to pay you back a rit- fixed interest return on the money that would be debt if you were to loan money to apple mm-hmm. say hey um not steve jobs he's not around anymore but uh tim cook yeah here's ten thousand pounds i'm loaning this to you at 10% a year, that would be obviously loaning debt. But if Apple want to raise equity, they sell shares. So we essentially sell shares in our SPV. Mm-hmm. Rosie and I sit as A classification shareholders. So we are the signatories on the bank. We're the ones that provide the personal guarantees. Yeah. And then first yeah. round of invest, ones. Yeah. We, we're the ones that are liable if, if the bank goes, um, if the bank wants to recall things. Re- recall things. And yeah, and so that's the difference between passive investors and, and the active investors as well but passive investors they don't take on any liability for the debt they sit as a separate classification of shares so so b shares we essentially sell if we want to sell if we want to raise five hundred thousand pounds for example on, on the second raise we did we offer 500 shares at a thousand pounds each yep. we can set a minimum investment and um, yes we had the b classification of shareholders where we raised the money to get into the deal and then as we're coming to starting on um, starting the project yep. now, we obviously need to raise that shortfall in equity.
1: Well, just backtracking a little bit, when we first did the first raise, our initial funding strategy was debt in the f- development finance plus a mezzanine facility, the so first and second charge. Coming round now, we've decided that although it's gonna be more expensive, we would rather replace that mezzanine facility, which was like, I don't know, 18%, mm-hmm. um, but was debt. Um, we'd rather replace that as equity, although ultimately it's probably gonna cost us more. It puts us as being less exposed. So um, we could have raised it all, obviously, day one, but between you know now and back then, we, we've changed our debt funding model. So we're basically... T- replacing a, a second charge lending facility with equity instead.
0: And with mezzanine as well, because you literally, that that's the money that you've drawn down day one. Mm-hmm. If there are delays like six months, that becomes expensive. Very. Whereas the interest pounds as well. Exactly. Whereas the equity, the investors get a profit share. Mm-hmm. Now from that profit share, we can basically say, look, if we deliver this deal and deliver the profit in line with these projections, that profit share is going to be equivalent to an IRR, an internal rate of return of 25% year of course if the deal gets delayed that irr that we deliver to the investors comes down whereas if we had obviously if we were up to our eyeballs in debt we'd still be paying the interest so hopefully that makes sense to some of you but yeah and, and so until we knew what the what we we're going to be offered on the development loan we didn't know what the shortfall in equity was between what we had currently in the site versus how much the banks were going to give us. It's about 500,000 pounds. So we've just about to close off a second round of investment. Again, haven't really promoted it publicly. Some of the investors have come from another deal that we were going to buy, which we've had to withdraw from currently. And maybe that's a conversation for a next podcast. Um, But yeah, so that's essentially a C classification of shareholders. We've raised a million pounds from probably about 10 Or so different investors, I'm unsure on the final number, but we'll do a big debrief.
1: Once we close that raise. Once
0: we've closed that raise. And
1: that was probably the biggest learning experience for both of us in this whole deal so far is learning that whole process, how to do that, how to do that compliantly. So that was like the the key learning curve for us.
0: For sure. And it may sound like a lot of money. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably it's not a lot of money compared to what we could have raised. But we're just very careful on raising from the right people, the right investors, um, understanding what is the best way to take, say, like a warm lead or even a cold lead Mm -hmm. to an investor that's actually willing to hand over their money. What's the best kind of, I don't want to use the word sales process, but it kind of is is a sale at the same of day. But what what is that deal cycle? What is the best way to do that? Is it doing project webinars? Is it getting on one on one calls, et cetera, et cetera? So. That was a learning curve, but having learned what we learned now, we're, we're confident we can do it at a much bigger scale. Yeah. But yeah, that's looking to close off. Maybe we'll do a f- another kind of podcast talking about the specifics of that because we've skimmed over the finance side of things a little bit. But And
1: as you mentioned, we've also got the development finance in the background at the minute, just undergoing due diligence to buy out the bridge and fund the construction.
0: Yeah, so we're almost there with that. I think they need a couple more documents from us. And Fingers crossed in a couple of weeks. A few weeks. Couple.
1: Usually. Okay. Um
0: <laughs> months yeah. and a bit. Yeah, we'll be ready to go. Stick a spade in the ground.
1: can't wait for that day.
0: <laughs> and then work on all the other deals we've got in the background.
1: Yeah, that's that's the beauty of using a main contractor. The day we sign that contract and they start on site and funding's in place, planning's obviously in place. They just deal with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just turn up and go, how are things looking? Cool. Go home again. So we can then you know, really focus on where we want to go with the business. After that, at the minute, all my time's taken up on bringing all these pieces together. Once we're on site, it becomes really hands-off, actually. Like, if I wanted, I'd never, I'd never have to go to site. Obviously, I would just because I like being on site. Um, but, yeah, you can be really hands-off and then dedicate your time back to what you're good at, which hopefully, yeah, finding the sites, raising the funding and growing the business.
0: Perfect. So that's all that's been going on with the Cambridgeshire Project. You can follow more behind the scenes on our Instagrams, which yep. we'll tag below. On My Instagram's Tyler Newman, Rosie Cassidy and our separate YouTube channels as well. And then, of course, subscribe to this podcast for some pretty insane guests.
1: The official or unofficial best <laughs> podcast in the world. What was the intro used before?
0: Number one world's best podcast property and development podcast champion in the world so yeah see you guys on the next one bye